Acts chapter 15. There's a lot to this passage. So if at any time you have a question, I would love for us to exchange in some Sunday school-esque dialogue. There will be some sermon times in this, but there's so much in it. There's a lot of teaching that um, it'd be totally fine if we had some dialogue this morning. Acts chapter 15, verse 1 says, Now some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers. They were saying, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. When Paul and Barnabas had a major argument and debate with them, the church appointed Paul and Barnabas and some others from among them to go up to meet with the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this point of disagreement. So they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they were relating at length the conversion of the Gentiles and bringing great joy to all the brothers. That's about a 250-mile trek. So they're basically hiking this 250-mile trek back to Jerusalem. On the way, everybody that they had engaged uh, on their way to where they were, um, they're saying, hey, we got some great news that God is uh, converting the Gentiles. Um, when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things God had done with them. But some from the religious party of the Pharisees who had believed stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and to order them to observe the law of Moses. Both the apostles and the elders met together to deliberate about this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God chose me to preach to the Gentiles so they would hear the message of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, has testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between them and us, cleansing their hearts by faith. So now why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? Do you all know what that yoke was, anybody? That they could obtain righteousness by observing the law, right? He said, we have never been able to keep this, so why would we want to put that yoke on them? The Holy Spirit has already come to them. Why do we want to subject them to requirements that we have never been able to fulfill on the contrary verse 11 we believe that we are saved through the grace of the lord jesus in the same way as they are so here's what's going on the church is growing and the church is moving and it's steadily moving out you remember it started in jerusalem went to judea then went to samaria then started reaching to the ends of the earth we had the Ethiopian fella get converted. Now we're all the way 250 miles from Jerusalem. It was a pretty good stretch um, from Jerusalem. We're 250 miles away from Jerusalem. Gentiles are being converted. It's important for us to know that Jews were always historically okay with Gentiles being converted. Even conservative Jews were okay with Gentiles being converted. There was a sect of Jews, though, that was actually... a uh, 
a subset of the Pharisees, so an even stricter set within the Pharisaical group, that said the only way you can be a proselyte to Judaism is if you become circumcised. Now, circumcision was not what it is today, where most children born in a hospital today are circumcised. Circumcision was specifically in this culture a defining feature, a, distinct, a distinguishing feature of a Jew over and against the other tribes, cultures, and peoples. Okay, The reason circumcision was the thing that was harped on is because guess what you could do with circumcision that you couldn't do with whether or not someone was observing dietary restrictions or someone was observing the Sabbath. What you could do with circumcision was you could prove it. <laughs> I, I could tell you I've been keeping the Sabbath. You don't know. I could tell you I've been eating kosher. You don't know. I could tell you I'm circumcised. Well, there's a way to find out. Obviously, they had a way. I don't know how this flashing was going on, but it was obviously happening. Okay? Uh, different world. Uh, gowns make it easier, I guess, right? Um, trying to immerse us, immerse us in the context. So, this is what's going on, and the, the church is growing. The Holy Spirit is falling on these Gentiles and is actually coming into them, which is what was prophesied in Ezekiel, that God would come and he would turn the heart of stone into a heart of flesh by giving us his spirit. It is happening this is fulfillment language, that what we've been looking for the whole time is being fulfilled. But these folks come in and say, no, 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 no. Unless they are circumcised, they cannot be saved. What does saved mean? They're not talking about unless they're circumcised, they can't go to heaven. They're saying unless they're circumcised, they cannot be saved. That's the, the word that's used here from the Septuagint is the word sozo, which means healthy, whole, delivered. So unless they're circumcised, they will not be able to walk in the way of prosperity, the way that is the way of God's people. This is what these folks are trying to say. The question we got to ask ourselves, and we're going to attempt an answer, is what did they think would be accomplished with circumcision? A little background, why did circumcision become the thing to begin with? Circumcision comes in before the giving of the law, Okay. One of the reasons circumcision comes, and it comes to a man named, anybody remember? Abraham. Thank you, Ryan. Abraham. It comes to Abraham because also that what came to Abraham was a promise that in your seed, thank you, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. What had happened was, as Scott McCain would say, what had happened was Adam sinned, and from that point on, every child that was born was passing through the organ of a cursed male. And every child that was born was going to be born cursed. So what God was doing was he was actually marking the entrance into the world for the seed with a blessing. Y'all with me? This could be a whole three-day conversation that we're not going to get into. So circumcision was the way God was actually marking and redeeming what had been cursed, and he was marking this particular instrument on the male, okay? Everybody knows where we're headed. So this had been the distinguishing feature all, all along. God had always 
made Israel a people who were distinct from the world, holy, is, that's where we get that word holy, separate from, separate from the world, and it was in that separation that the world was supposed to be drawn to God, okay? So, most Jewish people did believe that a righteous Gentile could be saved without circumcision. The more conservative Jews are the ones who said that you had to convert to Judaism to be saved, that there was no way you could become a part of the people of God unless you did the whole thing. You had to deny your family, you had to get circumcised, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, there's some big stuff going on because this council is addressing what is going to be this watershed ethnic question, and it is this. What is to be the basis of the inclusion of Gentiles in this newly constituted people of God? They knew, okay, God is obviously wanting the Gentiles to come. He's been drawing people outside of our bounds a lot these last couple weeks. We started with folks in Judea, then we started with some, we went to Samaritans, then we went to Ethiopians. Then Peter has this vision, he's with Cornelius, they're full-blown Gentiles at this point. And now he's got whole congregations of predominantly Gentile folks. So the question was not, is God calling Gentiles? The question is, what do we need to do with these folks he's calling? How do we make them distinct like we are so that the promises of God are not annulled and so that we can still be a holy people? It's pretty fair, right? Can you imagine, let's say we're all Jews. Let's say we're all male Jews, and we all have been circumcised. And the only reason we were circumcised is because that was what we were commanded was a part of how we could become grafted, or a part of, not grafted, a part of the promise of God. And all of a sudden, there's this entire people group who claim access to all that we have, and they are not circumcised. Are we frustrated? This is not fair. I am definitely one of these Pharisees in this sect that says, uh, we got to get control of all this growth. I'll tell you how we can decide if they're serious or not. <laughs> That's my MO, right? We'll, we'll know if they're in. I get it. I get why they're doing this. But something big is happening, and this is what we got to see. Verse 11, on the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. What? This is big stuff. Whether or not Gentiles could be included was a question that had already been settled. We know the Gentiles can be included. There were scriptures all through the prophets that said that there's going to come a day when the Gentiles would be included. The question now is what should be required of them. Now, here's what's interesting. A fellow named James begins speaking up in verse 13. This is James, the brother of, anybody know? The brother of Jesus. This is a big figure here in the story. So this is James, the brother of Jesus, who somehow, we don't know the backstory, is now the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has explained how God first concerned himself to select from among the Gentiles the people for his name. The words of the prophets agree with this as it is written. Now this is important because he's quoting Amos here. And here's what he says. 
After this, I will return and I will rebuild the fallen tent of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it, so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, namely all the Gentiles I have called to be my own, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. So James makes a reference to the prophet Amos, and the passage specifically that's quoted from Amos argues that Gentiles can indeed become part of the end-time people of God without surrendering their cultural identity. This is pretty wild. Once again, I don't know that I like this if I'm a Jew. Because what has set us apart for so long has been our practices. We are people who are circumcised. We are people who eat a certain way. We are people who observe the Sabbath. This, this has always been what distinguishes us from the pagans, from the Gentiles. We know whether or not we are idol worshipers by whether or not we as a people are circumcised, whether or not we eat kosher, and whether or not we observe the Sabbath. Now you got these folks creeping in. Well, how are, we go- how are they going to be distinct? That's big questions. I, as a Jew, am frustrated as well. If I'm, in the, if I'm a Jew in this situation, I'm like, no, we're going to need a way. We're going to need a way to make them, to force them, to limit them, to restrict them. And somehow they keep saying it's the grace of the Lord Jesus that will distinguish them. I don't get it. Neither did these guys. Here's where it gets interesting. Verse 19 says, Therefore I conclude that we should not cause extra difficulty for those among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we should write them a letter. And they're about to write the new list of commandments. So we drop down from 10 to 4 here. I conclude that we should not cause extra difficulty for those among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we should write them a letter telling them this, to abstain from things defiled by idols, to abstain from sexual immorality, and to abstain from what has been strangled and from blood. Y'all good for that? Sure, right. I don't know if my food's been offered to idols. I just buy it at the pig. For Moses has had those who proclaim him in every town from ancient times because he is read aloud in the synagogue every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to send men chosen from among them, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leaders among the brothers to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent this letter with them. Now here's the letter. Remember, Paul and Barnabas made this 250-mile trek back to Jerusalem to get counsel from the church. So there was a problem in the church. And rather than them just deciding amongst themselves, they said, no, there's a governing process, which is necessary. In any body of people, you have to have a governing system. They go back to Jerusalem where the governing system was, and they said, okay, we need you guys' help discerning this matter. This group of Pharisees who are our brothers are saying that these Gentiles need to be circumcised. What do you say? And they send them back with this letter. They said, okay, here's what we've concluded Take this letter back, and you can tell it to all the folks you passed on the way here, and you can especially tell it to the folks where this dissension initially started. Here's what it said. From the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile brothers and sisters in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. 
Since we have heard that some have gone out from among us with no orders from us and have confused you, upsetting your minds by what they said, we have unanimously decided to choose men to send to you along with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. At this point, Paul had already been stoned to death. This is his last chapter. Stoned, left for dead, and somehow recovers from it. So they've already risked their life for the sake of the gospel. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas, who will tell you these things themselves in person. For it seemed best to the Holy Spirit and to us. It seemed best to the Holy Spirit and to us. This word, it seemed, is the Greek word dokein, D-O-K-E-I-N. It's where we get the word dogma. Okay? Dogma is inherited belief. Dogma can be and should be a good thing. They said, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit not to place any greater burden on you than these necessary rules, that you abstain from meat that has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from doing these things, you will do well. Farewell. Okay. This is big stuff. All throughout the history of God picking a people to be a blessing to the nations, to redeem the curse of humanity, these people have had to circumcise their men. Now, this group just sent this letter to these Gentiles who are being welcomed into the story of God as the people of God, and they say, no, you don't. You don't have to be circumcised. But here's what we do want you to do. We want you to abstain from meat that has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Well, guess where they got these rules? Anybody want to guess? The Old Testament. The book of Leviticus, chapter 17 and 18, would have laid this out really clearly. Um, post the flood, Genesis chapter 9, the, the Noahide laws is what these are called. These would have been the same rules. Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, I'll need that Bible. Here's what's interesting. These rules are written down so that the Jewish converts can be in fellowship and community with Gentiles. This is why we have these rules. Because one of the biggest expressions that Jesus is Lord in this time in a hospitality culture was that you could sit down at a meal with someone who was ethnically, racially, economically different than you. Okay? The things Jesus got scolded for. These rules basically tell Gentiles, we need you to observe these things so that you and your Jewish brothers, who are going to remain kosher, can actually have table fellowship together. This is big news. They only get rules so that they can stay joined together with a people who are different than them. 
Why is that important? Because what God is doing is including people who are culturally, ethnically, economically different than we are. That's why every week we culminate our service, not with an altar call, which is the traditional way in evangelistic churches to culminate. We culminate the service with the initiation of eating together with whoever I wind up sitting with. Why would this be important? Well, that's what we're getting at, right? In Leviticus, the laws were written to maintain the purity of the Jewish people. That's why, that's why we got the whole, the whole uh, tribute to uh, how to maintain a society in Leviticus. Now, the question is, what rules do we need to let go of so that we can be in fellowship with them? Paul actually talks about this in the book of Romans. He says, um, some of you are going to think that eating meat is bad. Some of you are going to observe a day more than others. And what we, what we need to make sure is that no matter what we do, we don't decide that we're going to observe something that will offend our brother. Because the whole picture was about unity. The whole thing God was doing, and this is where it's about to get personal because it is election day. On Tuesday. Here's where it's about to hit, hit hard. The whole thing God was doing was actually saying, there are no more us and them. Uh-oh. Because we don't know what to do with that. We only know typically how to identify ourselves by those we oppose. As the saying goes, there's no greater unity than a common enemy. I was down fishing one time, me and my daddy down in Louisiana. I get in a truck with a fellow I'd never met before. The first question he asked me, he said, you Republican or Democrat? I said, well, I don't like this about the Republicans, and I don't like that about the Democrats. He hated that answer. He needed me to be something, right? Because he needed to know if I was on his team or not. This is the way we work, right? We work with tribal associations. It's, even this language is in the church a lot right now. That's my tribe. Those are my people. And what God is trying to show is he's trying to kick down all these borders and say, I have died for the sake of the world. For the sake of the world. Who who, who, who doesn't get in? This is what the Jews are trying to No, no, no. we got to have something that says they're in and they're out. And they're like, well, all that we're going to do is actually develop rules that, so that y'all can all eat together. That'll be the rules we set up. What do we need to do to make sure y'all can still eat together? Y'all's conscience is good and theirs is good. What do we need to do? What do we need to do so that they are living a life that is not offending to you and you can live a life that is still what you understand is in worship to God? What the heck? I want you to see this story play out. Notice we're headed back to Antioch. This is where all this is going on. Y'all still with me? 
We still got a little ways to go. And I tried to do 30 minute sermons. Today ain't going to be one of those. Galatians chapter 2. It might be. I got three minutes. Galatians chapter 2. Verse 11. This is interesting. Do y'all remember the first person that spoke up at the Jerusalem Council just a second ago? He was talking about an experience he had with a man named Cornelius. Y'all remember this man? Peter. All right. Peter is one of the first people that steps up and says, Yeah, God is choosing the Gentiles. But when Cephas, or Cephas is actually how you say it. Cephas is how you say, um, what's his name? The country music singer? Yeah. Cephas is actually this. Cephas is Peter, okay? But when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he had clearly done wrong. What did he do? What was it, Danny? He wouldn't because he was a coward. Until certain people came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they arrived... He stopped doing this and separated himself because he was afraid of those who were pro-circumcision. Peter was eating with the Gentiles like he's supposed to do. God is redeeming the world. He's tearing down divisions. He's creating peace. Peter's fine with sitting around the table with the Gentiles until those jokers come in and they got their garb on because they're upright religious folks and you can recognize them when they come in. And Peter's like, no, I don't, I don't eat with those guys. They're not like us. There's no way I'd have them to my house. They're not like us. Do you know how they vote? They're not like us. Oh, shoot. And the rest of the Jews also join with him. Bunch of cowards. In this hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray with them by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not behaving consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, If you, although you are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you try to force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Basically saying, you've been living like you're under grace, and that's how they're invited in. Come on now. We just missed that. Oh, shoot. I thought we was going to stay in the second century today. And here we are in 2022 on election day. You're acting like you're living under grace. Before they showed up, you was living under grace. You was eating stuff that you ain't ever ate before because you said God gave you a vision. You was walking around free from shame because you said God forgave you. You was walking around empathizing with folks because you know what it's like to sin. But then when they showed up, you abandoned them. And then all these other folks left you because they was following you. And Paul, who is not afraid to die because he's always on the verge of death, it seemed like, told, he was like, you're a daggone coward, man. You're a hypocrite. He said, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's the best thing we've said today.
So I'm going to say it again. We know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what I want to show you. Some of your Bibles right there will say faith in Jesus Christ. Does anybody say that? It is a mistranslation that we're going to spend all next week talking about. The phrase is the phrase pistis Christu aisu, as we know, which means the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, where that would be turned is if it was faith in Jesus Christ, who would be the one responsible? You or Jesus? But the turn is this. We have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Here's the sermon, y'all. We could have spent all day talking about circumcision. I'd love for us to have a Sunday school class where we can do that. But here's what's going on. We are a people who are prone to identify ourselves only by what we do not do and by who we will not associate with. We are a people who are scared, therefore we wind up clicking up and developing tribes. We are a people who forget that we are called to be a light to the world, that we are the, the city set on the hill, that we are called to redeem the world with the message that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here's the reality. Jesus is Lord of the entire world. This is the reality. How do I know? Because when I fast forward, when history ever fast forwards and the prophets get a vision of it, they see every knee bowing and every tongue confessing, Jesus, you are Lord. This is what the scripture says. When it fast forwards the story, it says, one day every knee will bow because this is the reality. So the ideal is that everyone experiences this reality, but the only way we will is if there's a people living into that reality. Jesus is Lord of who? He's no longer just the Lord of the Jews. He's no longer just the Lord of this group of Gentiles. He is the Lord of all. Which means... I don't get permission to refuse a seat at the table to anybody. No matter how they vote, no matter what they've said, no matter what they've done, no matter what they don't do, I don't get permission. You know the only people Paul gives us permission not to sit with? He does give us permission not to sit with some folks. People who claim to be Christians, who live sexually immoral lifestyles. Isn't that interesting? That's the only people we get permission to not sit with. And the hope is that when they don't get a seat at the table, it's called excommunication where we actually get that word. Um, they're no longer able to sit at the communion table, which is where we get excommunicated. Um, the hope is that when they are outside the table, they see the fellowship and are drawn back in. Not that they are eternally rejected. We'll get to that sermon whenever we get to 1 Corinthians. But in the meantime, we cannot be Kephas in Antioch. We cannot be 
the Jews who are saying, no, I need to put a yoke of bondage on them. They, there's, they've got to do more to be accepted. This whole story, what God has been leading to the entire time, if you remember back at Pentecost, he started redeeming the curse of Babel. What was the curse of Babel? Separation and division. He starts redeeming it by allowing everyone to speak in a language that they could understand. and They were speaking a language that all these Parthians, Mede, Elamites could hear. And it was this worship of God that was unifying a people again. Jesus' prayer in John 17 is, God, let them be one as we are one. He's talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He said, let them be one as we are one. The world will know then. Let's just read it. John 17. It's important. Y'all still with me? John 17. I knew this one was going to take three days, but... It's worth it. Start in verse 11. He said, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them safe in your name that you have given me so that they may be one just as we are one. When I was with them, I kept them safe and watched over them in your name. That you have given me. Not one of them was lost except the one destined for destruction, so that the scripture could be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and I'm saying these things in the world so they may experience my joy completed in themselves. There's another scripture there I want to pull out here. I can't find it. Here it is, verse 20. I'm not praying only on their behalf but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their testimony, that they will all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. I pray that they will be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. So that the world will believe that you sent me. What is the contingency that Jesus is praying here? If this, then the world will believe that you sent me. If what? Somebody? Boldly. If they be in us, what does that look like? They are like us. What is that like? They are one, just as we are one. This whole story is about doing away with racial, ethnic, sexual, economic borders. It's about redeeming the curse of Babel. It is about sitting at the table with the people who aren't like us. Because God never asked us to be distinct from the world so that the world could be judged. He asked us to be set apart from the world for their sake. If who we are, if I'm identifying myself only by what I'm opposed to and the people I'm against... I am a hypocrite like Peter. But what I got to see is that I'm sitting around the table with people who don't deserve to be there in the same way that I don't deserve to be there. And the only thing that has got us there is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. They are pardoned. I am pardoned. 
we are pardoned not because of anything we've done, but because of his faithfulness. We're about to have this meal together. I reread this morning the passage in 1 Corinthians about the Lord's Supper. I want to remind you that the only way we can eat this meal in an unworthy manner is if we eat this meal and then go over here to sit down at this table and refuse to sit down with someone who's not like us. That's what it means to eat this meal in an unworthy manner. That doesn't mean scan the room to find someone who's not like you and then go sit with them because that'd be weird. What it does mean is if there's an open seat and you say, eh, not them. What Paul said would happen if you sat down and ate the meal is that you would eat sickness onto yourself. And that that was the reason people were dying prematurely. What the heck? It ain't me saying it. Because what God has done is made a people one through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ.